Professor Grayling uh, joins us today, having recently published his book, uh, For the Good of the World, uh, Is Global Agreement uh, on Global Challenges uh, Possible? A copy of which I have here. Uh, in this, he discusses the most urgent challenges facing the world today, and he asks, can human beings work together to uh, confront the threats facing the planet, uh, or will we simply continue with our disagreements uh, as we encounter greater problems and even our possible extinction. Um, there can be few uh, bigger questions facing us today uh, and I look forward um, to exploring this as we go along. Um, Professor Grayling has agreed to uh, offer some introductory comments for 10 or 12 minutes or so to, to set the scene. Um, I'll then maybe pose a few questions on the back of that and then throw it open uh, to you, uh, the audience. I'd be grateful, um, we'll be passing around mics, I think. Um, I'd be grateful if you could introduce um, who you are. Um, if you're here representing a particular organisation, please feel free to name drop them uh, as well. I'd be grateful if you could keep the, the questions or comments as brief as possible so we can allow as many people as possible to contribute. But with that, I will hand the floor to Professor Grayley. Thank you very much indeed, and uh, thank you so much for the invitation to come up. Um, I have to say, by the way, uh, right at the outset, that uh, looking at the programme for this uh, Festival of Politics, I think it is absolutely superb. The, the range of topics, the importance of them, the fact that they're being discussed here, it, it is a refreshment to the soul to find that there is somewhere on the face of the planet and even in these islands where civilization continues to exist <laughs> and people are still thinking. <laughs> well, um, uh, as you see, I've been limited to 10 or, or 12 even minutes when what I like, of course, is to, is to have breakfast organized for the following morning so we can, we can really get into things. So I'm going to have to talk fast and be brief, but I will expand on, on uh, any of the points in response to questions. So this is a book in which I address three big, they are indeed very big issues, and the question indeed is, can we, that is the world community, uh, work together to try to address these problems and, and uh, overcome them? Is global agreement possible? And the answer that I give in the book is, yes, it is possible, even though it's not very probable. And it's quite likely that uh, some or all of the challenges that we face will provide us with the answers themselves. Uh, just to give you one small indication, uh, in thinking about the great pressures that our planet is under from uh, climate change, and we're witnessing some of the, uh, the coming events, uh, even today, those of us who are mad enough to be wearing a suit <laughs> can <laughs> testify to that. But um, it, it's been pointed out that, uh, you know, the the destruction of the Amazon rainforest, the equivalent of 10 times the size of Cornwall every year being cut down to graze cattle to provide meat for McDonald's hamburgers and uh, fillet steaks and so on, that we could get first-class protein from mealworms. Mealworms are a delicacy in some parts of the world. They're probably not so in Edinburgh, and they certainly aren't in London. So uh, we look with some aversion at the thought that we might have to source our protein supply from rather unpalatable-seeming places. But either we choose to do it and do it in ways that are palatable and hygienic, or we will end up on our hands and knees looking for worms one day when everything in our world really has collapsed. 
And that's just a way of dramatizing the point that uh, the climate problem, if it isn't properly addressed and it isn't being properly addressed, will force solutions on us in ways that we don't want and we will be kicking ourselves for not having done much, much more, much, much earlier. Now, the climate problem is one of the three things that, that I address, and I think it is uh, probably the most familiar one. It's also the one for which, um, at any rate, some solutions are reasonably obvious. When I say that, I, I predicate that remark on the fact that, of course, it is already too late to stop climate change. It's happening. And the challenge now is how to mitigate its effects and how to adapt to its effects because we're not going to be able to stop the rise in the sea levels. We're not going to stop the um, increasing number of extreme weather events which are already causing, as we can see, floods, droughts, uh, wildfires, huge wildfires in California and Australia, uh, the, the kind of uh, um, very, very unprecedented levels of temperature, even in temperate climes like our own here in the far north. And remember, we are in the far north here, because if you were to move the British Isles around the globe we would end up in Hudson's Bay in Canada. That's how far north we are. Now, we've just been very lucky for some thousands of years because of the Gulf, Gulf Stream. But if climate change were to alter the course of the Gulf Stream, that's going to alter the course of our, our climate here. And life is going to be very different for us or for our descendants. So th this is something that we, we perfectly well understand, that we have to mitigate and we have to adapt. And we've got to keep, or should be, pouring enormous amounts of investment into finding ways to try to redress some of the problems or, or really limit them if we can uh, by, for example, developing technologies of carbon capture and the like. Now, you've heard everybody say we've got to try to keep warming below two degrees by the um, middle of the century. Uh, we're already on track for nearly three degrees at the moment, and we are still looking at people who are denying, who are diverting attention, who are dragging their feet, and they're doing it for a, a reason which is perhaps one of the major problems in our world, not just with this but with the other problems I'm going to talk about as well, and that is that there is an iron law, and it's a terrible law, it's a law of self-interest, in fact, it's such a bad law that I gave it my own name. It's called Grayling's Law. And it, it is this, that anything that can be done will be done, anything that can be done will be done if it brings profit or advantage to whoever can see that it gets done. So, for example, genetic engineering of fetuses to produce six-foot-five geniuses with blonde hair and blue eyes, that will happen. That will happen because there are people, rich people or bad people, but that's different classes of people, who will ensure that uh, th those things will happen. Or uh, if uh, um, very, very dangerous weapons uh, can be developed, uh, controlled by AI, and this is one of the points I also discuss in the book, then this is happening, not that it will happen, it can happen, it is happening, because hundreds of billions of dollars have been invested in the development of so-called autonomous weapons systems. In fact, they are known as, as LAWS, L-A-W-S, Lethal Autonomous Weapons Systems, not managed or controlled by any human being, but just by AI once they are set going, uh, and these weapon systems will be the chief 
competence in forthcoming wars. Great questions arise about their reliability, about the accountability for their use, and so on. And these things are on track. They will happen because they can happen, and they will bring advantage to those nations, United States, France, Britain, uh, the, uh, Russia, China, with the technological and financial competence to produce them, because they are being produced right now. So this law tells us why people drag their feet over the climate issue. It's because national governments are a bit timid about being too rapid in their um, efforts to achieve net zero uh, because it puts them into competitive disadvantage with other economies. And so you get, uh, you know, like the Glasgow uh, conference last November, it always surprises me that the amount of polluting greenhouse gases pumped into the atmosphere to bring people to a conference where they add to it with all the hot air, and then they don't do anything about it afterwards. So it's a kind of double loss in a way. But at any rate, all the fine agreements and head noddings that go on at these great conferences, and yet look how little gets done. So this is a problem, and it's a major problem. As I say, we're familiar with it, except for this problem, which is that we've heard so much for so long about the dangers, the forthcoming the over-the-horizon dangers of climate change, that too many people now glaze over and switch off when people talk about it. And therefore, they don't get involved and they don't become activists. And when you look at the, um, for example, the young people engaged in Extinction Rebellion and you see how urgent they, they feel uh, um, it is to get active and to be involved and to do something, well, personally, I have the greatest admiration for them because they really do have a sense of, of, the, uh, of the problem, the nature of the problem. So there's one great problem that, that we're familiar with. I just, mentioned, I just mentioned two things about it to try to sort of dramatize it a bit more. One is this. I mentioned the sea level rises. These are occurring and they're going to uh, increase. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of people live on littorals, on seashores, very, very close to the sea. Uh, on an island like uh, uh, this one, uh, we're, we're all of us not too far from the sea. Places like Bangladesh, Florida, um, many of the island communities like the Maldives and so on are tremendously at risk already and already beginning to see um, so some of the problems. Well, when the sea levels rise to the point where whole communities are displaced, agricultural land is salinated, salt water uh, um, makes them useless for agriculture. Water supplies become salinated also and can't be used for drinking. When this happens, there will be not the hundreds of thousands of refugees or the millions of refugees that we've seen from Syria and Ukraine. There will be hundreds of millions of refugees pouring into places themselves already stressed and finding it difficult to manage because of the difficulties that the climate change will bring. Think of the disruption and the turmoil. Think of the difficulty. Think of the conflict that will arise when that happens. And on the current trends, it's going to happen sooner rather than later. So that's one problem. That's on the big scale. Think at the small scale. We know that the impact of climate change will mostly affect what's called the poor south, although, of course, it's not just the southern hemisphere, it's also South Asia and so forth. And in the poor south, women... Very, very few women learn to swim. Very few women wear clothing which will not drown them if they get caught in a flood. Very few women are exempt from the responsibility of looking after children and elderly people and the ill, having to find food and uh, drinkable water for them. 
When these climate impacts hit those communities, those regions of the world, it is going to be women who suffer far more than men. And yet, how little do we hear the woman's voice in discussions of these matters? Hardly at all. I mean, of course, there are some very, very distinguished and formidable ladies who are involved in this and who are trying to impress on people the fact that this is an, this is an issue, a fine-grained issue, which really affects people in villages, on the ground, in communities, in homes. And yet people tend to think on the large scale about hundreds of millions of refugees and not about the individual women who, because they have to walk further to find uh, fresh water and it's always the duty of women and girls to do this, they are more vulnerable to harassment and attack and so on as a result. I mean, it's the fine-grained issues like that at the, at the, really at the sort of bottom level of thinking about the impact of these things, which is too often forgotten. So I just mentioned those two things because they do, as I say, dramatise the problems. The second problem that I raise in the book is about technology. Now, this is a very wide-ranging problem. We've lived through uh, the last couple of decades of incredibly rapid technological change. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary to think that there are people in this room, perhaps the majority of us in this room, who remember what it was like not to have the internet and a mobile phone and all the rest of it. God, how did we manage with our feather quills and our forked sticks? I have no idea. But at any rate, we did. And we, we've seen this uh, as dramatic change. Now, here's one thing um, that, that we insufficiently realize about the nature of this change, that every single one of us in this room who has an email address or a telephone, a mobile phone or a WhatsApp or whatever, Twitter, uh, has stripped himself or herself naked to the view of any public or private agency that wants to find out about us. If I asked you, what were you doing at about four o'clock on the second Wednesday of March five years ago, quick, 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 unless you have a, a memory like Funes the Memorius, that character in the Borges story who could never forget anything at all, you probably wouldn't know. But Mr. Google does, and you know, anybody your bank card person does, and you know, everybody does who's tapped into you in, through the digital uh, umbilicus by which we are attached to uh, the world around us. And this is just one small example of how incredibly transformative these technologies have been. But they are vastly more so. Our world is now run, in developed economies at least, by AI. Pretty well everything that we do, from your bank card to your uh, supplies to your supermarket, to your, your, absolutely everything is, is AI pretty well. And it's getting more and more. Um, you know, It's not going to be very long before on your phone with the press of a button you can you know, switch on the kettle and the, and the um, central heating and the, open the front door and what have you as you're on your way home from work. You know, it will all be, everything will be digitized and connected up uh, and uh, we will find enormous conveniences from it. And indeed, some of these technological advances are of great advantage to us. Only think of incredibly precise AI-controlled brain surgery. No shaking hand, no quarrel with the spouse the night before that makes your surgeon a bit dodgy this morning, etc. You can think of that. You can think of um, interactive AI teaching maths to primary school children in a very fun way and very interactive, working with the grain of the individual pupil and monitoring progress, helping that pupil really to get a grasp. I mean, you can see all sorts of ways in which these new technologies can be wonderful. But they are also, of course, uh, very uh, question-raising. Again, let me give you just a couple of examples. I've already mentioned um, lethal autonomous weapons. Well, now, you will know about the drones that flew over the badlands of 
the Pakistan-Afghan border used in the Afghan uh, conflict and so on. Those, those things, which are unmanned aerial vehicles, heavily armed, fly very high, stay aloft for hours and hours and hours, uh, very precise uh, uh, camera uh, and, and um, uh, sort of vision uh, capacity. They are controlled by uh, pilots in an Air Force base in Nevada in the United States. So they fly over Afghanistan, but they are flown from the United States. Wonderful for the home team, because there are no body bag problems. You know, if one of them gets shot down, nobody on the home team is killed. That's great. So that's called a human in the loop, uh, because a human being is operating the system. There are also systems already in operation which are called human on the loop systems. So these are systems which are completely automatic, but a human being is monitoring their activity. The primary such system is the so-called SeaWiz anti-missile defense system used by NATO navies, United States Navy, British Navy, French Navy, and so on. On these ships, there is this system which monitors the skies, and if a hostile missile is coming towards the ship, the uh, anti-missile defense system responds automatically. But there is somebody watching its operation, just in case it isn't a Russian missile, but your Ryanair is a bit off course, and, it's, and uh, then, then your, this chap will, will I hope, um, divert the, the, the system. Uh, the Israeli Defense Force uses such a system. It's called the Iron Dome system, which protects against rockets coming in from Gaza. That's a completely automatic system which blows rockets out of the sky. Human on the loop. But these new laws systems, these lethal autonomous weapon systems, are called human out-of-the-loop systems. There's no human being monitoring them. Once they've been programmed and set going underwater, on land, in the air, they are autonomous. They're programmed to do the three things that a weapon system is designed to do, the three Fs, find, fix, and finish. So to detect uh, enemy assets, uh, fix on them, and uh, um, blow them up. Now, the argument for them, again, is no body bags for the home team. They're dispassionate. They're not angry or frightened or confused. You know, they're, they're being run by something automatic, the AI system. They'd be much more efficient, maybe even better than human beings at limiting collateral damage, that is, the deaths to bystanders. But on the other hand, the AI in them has to be so good that it can distinguish between somebody surrendering and somebody about to throw a hand grenade at it. It's got to be so good that in the confusion and dust and noise and tumult and movement of battle, it can tell the difference between an enemy combatant, wounded maybe, under a Geneva Convention not to be attacked further, or a civilian lost and desperate, frightened, stumbling towards it, not knowing where he or she is. We've got facial recognition technology now, which is very, very widely used. For example, in China, quite widely used in India, and in other places, it's used in our airports here. This facial recognition technology is meant to be able to tell from your facial expression in Heathrow Airport whether you're a terrorist. God knows how it does that, because we all feel like one when we're there, and it's so stressful. But this is what that uh, technology is meant to do. And you ask whether uh, these weapon systems, uh, you know, just how um, many mistakes might arise from their use. So that, that, that's one question. But on balance, you might think, oh, well, better machines than, than our own soldiers. Well, what about this? Already in development, and indeed this very week there was uh, some dramatic new news about this, about brain-chip interfacing. Uh, the news this week was that uh, um, uh, chips can now transmit dopamines, 
uh, and therefore a chip can, can channel dopamine into the brain to uh, alter uh, you know, mood and so forth. But brain chip uh, um, interfacing already exists, uh, so this new technology is uh, aimed at helping people with uh, epilepsy, with Parkinson's disease, that's marvellous. Help people with traumatic memories, you know, terribly traumatic memories, or great depression. These brain chip uh, interfaces could be life-transforming for people who really suffer. But if you can help people with traumatic memories, if you can do something about their traumatic memories, then you can do something about their memories. Maybe even induce memories. If you can change people's mood, then not just from depression, but maybe you could make people depressed, or you could make them angry. Or, well, anyway, you have to ask yourself the question. These technologies have got wonderful new uses, good uses. They also have some questionable ones. And guess what? There has not been a public conversation about these new technologies, what we want from them, how we're to manage them and control them, and even in some cases whether we want them at all. Because there are other technologies. For example, did you know that over 90% of robots sold in Japan, and Japan is a leading robot uh, technology economy, over 90% of the robots sold in Japan are sex robots. And if you, if you were to go online and look up the, anything about the sex robot industry in Japan or California, which is the other great place for them, you will see that they are you know, pretty well sort of Westworld already, um, you know, very, very um, attractive-looking, mainly young ladies. There are some, some male-form sex robots. The thought was that if you were a rather handsome, well-endowed, high-performing male sex robot, which you could switch off afterwards and put back in the cupboard and you didn't have to wash your socks or underpants or anything, he would be very attractive to the ladies. Answer, no, ladies are far too intelligent for this, and that, that part of the market hasn't really taken off. But the female part of the market has taken off, and of course there's a tremendous controversy about it because, well, do we want this, and, and in what way do we want it? We certainly don't want one of the things which is on offer in Japan, and that is paedophile um, sex robots. I mean, that, that's uh, uh, appalling. Some countries have already outlawed that in prospect. But it, you can see how it raises questions. People say uh, this could alter um, you know, sexual behavior and sexual pr proclivities, uh, where this is a part of life, an intimate, um, you know, deeply emotional part of life, which should be reserved to living human beings. And then other people say, well, what about those who are only lonely or disabled or uh, you know, don't have a partner and so on. How are we to manage this? Well, has there been a conversation about this? Have we discussed what we should do, could do, can do, need to do? Answer, no. Now, these are just two uh, examples of technologies, the brain chip and the, and the robots. I could throw in the laws as well, where we really have not had a public conversation about these things. And these are things that no individual nation-state can do anything about no individual government, British government or the American government, the Canadian government, decide to not have robots or not have laws or not have brain chip technologies. But other countries will. If something can be done, it will be done by somebody if they can get it done. It will happen. And therefore, these countries won't want to fall behind. They will want to try and keep up. They will want to try and be part, part of the story. Therefore, this is a global issue which needs to be addressed in a global manner. Finally, and I'm massively overrunning my time. I warned you, anyway, that you, you were told. <laughs> Finally, and I'll, be, and I'll be brief. 
The third big issue uh, is, again, it's a familiar one, but also it is one which, in a way, is so big that it seems intractable. It seems difficult even to know where to begin to discuss it. And this is the problem of the terrible deficit of democracy in our world and the injustice and inequality in our world. Now, some of, these, some of the aspects of this are very familiar. How much of the wealth of the world is in how few hands, uh, how uh, many people in our world still, even though global poverty has been reducing over the last quarter of a century or more, um, how many hundreds of millions, indeed, I think it's 1.5 billion people, who still live on less than $3 a day in our world. Imagine that. Uh, and th there is a tremendous uh, disparity between those who have not just assets, but also influence, who have a voice, and those who don't have a voice, who don't have any say, who are not part of the story and part of the discussion. And this problem, the, the democratic deficit problem in the world at large, and the injustice problem, and the silence of the vast majority of people, is why the other two problems are not being addressed. Because governments uh, you know, can get away with really not, not really paying attention to what people uh, say and, and what people need and would recognise that they need if they were given the right kind of information, not the sort of Daily Mail you know, misinformation or anything, but if, they were, if people were really informed. Let me just leap right to the ideal. The ideal is that everybody is very well informed, everybody is knowledgeable, and everybody is to some degree altruistic, some degree interested in others, not just in their community, but uh, on the other side of the world, realizing that decisions they make and help participate in making will have impacts far beyond their own local community or their own time. And that, uh, uh, and that their voice will be heard, that people can come together and they can have an influence on policy. They can get their governments to work with other governments and to do what is necessary to confront these huge challenges that the world faces. That would be the ideal. Now, you all know that, that, that this uh, ideal is extremely unlikely to be um, recognised. Just to give you a kind of neutral example, some of you here may uh, remember Adlai Stevens, the, Stevenson, the man who stood against Eisenhower for the presidency. Do you remember that? He was a very intellectual man, a reader. And somebody said to him, Mr. Stevenson, every thinking person in America is going to vote for you. And he said, I'm pleased to hear it, but I need a majority. Now, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is the problem, problem in our world, that people, people are misinformed and people are very, you know, temporary and local in their thinking. People are, don't really understand, always think about the consequences of things. A lot of self-interest governs, so that law, you know, the law of self-interest applies in its own way. And also there are too many, too many agencies in our world who, who use the negative form of that law. Remember that I said the law, anything that can be done will be done? Well, anything that can be done won't be done if it brings a cost or a disadvantage to whoever can stop it. Perfect example, President Trump. The minute he became president, he resiled on the Paris Climate Accords because, you remember he held up a sign, Trump digs coal, because the coal miners, the coal mining industry backed him. He was going to keep on burning fossil fuels because that was his constituency. And so he, because he could, uh, stopped doing something that we could do, which was possible for us to do, and that is try to address the climate issue. So there's you know, an example of the obverse of that, of that law. 
Too many vested interests, too much, you know, political capital is invested in the short term. You won't mind my... We won't <laughs> pretend there are no um, MSPs here. Uh, too, too much uh, short-termism in mm -hmm. politics. Oh, I know you don't suffer from that. How can you in Orkney? <laughs> and the, 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 the great problem that faces our world is how the voice, how to inform everybody and to get the voice of the people through so that it has a genuine impact. So that, 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 those are the three big areas of, of uh, um, difficulty. Um, the solution, it is possible. It is possible, but it's very improbable. <laughs> Uh, it, it's, it will remain improbable until events force us to eat those mealworms, metaphorically and literally, when the problem has gone so far beyond us that the only way back is through desperation. If only it were possible to get people to think differently in advance, uh, but um, short of, of um, meetings like these and books like that and efforts like the Extinction Rebellion folk uh, uh, make, uh, it, at the moment, doesn't look too promising. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Professor Grayling. Um, I can see the, the presiding officer assessor at the back of the room is marking me down handsomely <laughs> for allowing you uh, to overrun. But there were mitigating circumstances there. You've given us plenty of uh, food for thought. I heard the... Um, the chief executive of Ryanair on the radio this morning talking about the end of cheap flights uh, mm. for the time. I don't think he was talking about them being inadvertently blown out of the air, uh, <laughs> but then um, maybe, uh, maybe, he, maybe he was. I, the point you were making there, Professor Grayling, about short-termism, I mean, I think, I think you're absolutely right, and I, and I don't um, necessarily um, uh, plead exception from that. I, I think, um, as Adlai Stevenson uh, found to his cost, Sometimes um, uh, speaking truth, um, uh, unpalatable truths uh, to, to, to voters uh, has, the, uh, has the effect of, of, um, of killing a political career short. Um, so on the basis that we're almost constantly in a, in a, um, a cycle of, of, of elections, whether it's here, whether it's in other parts of the UK, whether it's other parts of Europe or indeed around the world, there will always be an election um, on the horizon that will be focusing the minds of some of the key players that will need to be uh, engaged in, in, in those discussions um, and taking those, those tough decisions. The, the, the point you very fairly make about the comparative disadvantage, I'm, I would be quite happy doing this, but if everybody else isn't, then I can't be. There is no benefit of, of, of prime mover as far as I can see it. And also, I think the point you were talking about innovation can help. And, and, and having been involved in, in a lot of the discussions within this parliament, there is a temptation to think we can innovate our way out of crisis. Mm -hmm. But actually fundamental to this is a lot of behavioural change, mm -hmm. which is the tough stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think it's nice to think that, that innovation will um, spare us from the hole we've got ourselves in. But, 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 but actually, fairly fundamental changes in the way we live our lives are, are going to be uh, essential. We've set some we like to think we're leading climate change legislation here, which shows that we can think beyond the next election, but, but setting in place statutory targets for 15, 20, 30 years hence is very easy because you're not necessarily going to be around um, to answer for them if you, if you fall short. How do we square that circle? How do you continue to get elected 
talking about and committing to the sorts of changes that um, you, I think, quite rightly um, argue are, are, are necessary. Um, and, and, but you need those people in place then to follow them, follow them through. Mm-hmm. Well, OK, so, uh, you know, nothing uh, in our world is, is the result of a single course, and there's never one solution. There always has to be a, a raft of things that one might do. But central to this, answering this business about the political cycle, is that we need genuinely proportional systems of representation, genuinely proportional. Now, I know you, you have the, the, the system here, the um, additional member system, um, which is uh, you know, on the way to being properly proportional. But if we had genuinely proportional systems, it, it means that uh, governments have to be coalition governments. Have a look at, at what happened in the Netherlands last year. There was an election in the Netherlands in April or March, in the spring, and a government was formed after discussion among all the different parties, because many parties in the Netherlands Parliament, uh, to form a government in December. Now, people look at this with horror. My God, nine months to form a government after a, an, an election because it's so proportional. I think that's absolutely marvellous, because it meant that the discussions that were had uh, brought about a programme for government which had broad agreement among all the different parties who had their special interests that they wanted to, to put forward uh, and they eventually arrived at, at some kind of compromise. Compromises sometimes look you know, insufficiently radical and insufficiently swift moving, but at least they bring the people along with them. The great thing about a truly proportional system of representation is that people really believe that their vote makes a difference. In UK elections, and you've seen, you know, uh, mm-hmm. how um, big majorities in the House of Commons in London can be achieved on a minority of the votes. It happened in the case of 2019 election with this man Johnson. Uh, he got a, an 80-seat majority on 43% of votes cast, representing 29% of the electorate, given the proportion of people who actually voted. Well, that's just simply unacceptable. And if you're going to get corrupt, incompetent, inefficient uh, government, which uh, might have happened recently, it's uh, p- part of the reason for that is that, that so many people think my vote doesn't make a difference. I'm in a constituency which has always voted for the donkey with the blue rosette on it, and that's going to happen again now. So if you have a properly representative system, and in my view, compulsory voting, and in my view, you start voting at 16, and you make it a big part of civic education, that the responsibility to take part in the decisions about electing your representatives is a really important part of being a mature member of society, you're going to shift the balance and you're going to make people think more carefully about it. Not just about how they use their vote, but about the people who put themselves forward as their representatives, so they can assess them more. I mean, I talk about the donkey with the blue rosette. I mean, the House of Commons is full of them down in London, um, just because they've got a party label. And, you know, that's the fault of the electors who just allowed people to be nominated by the party and they weren't properly quizzed and squizzed. There are people there with no experience of anything other than politics from, you know, the, since they were in knee high. Uh, and, and, and that is something which needs to be addressed, so that. But also, um, you do something here. I mean, this very event here is a marvellous example of, of what should be done in all parliaments, and that is that the programme being discussed here um, this week raises issues of very, very great importance that the public and parliamentarians and others in think tanks and so on should be thinking about. There should be a space like this, that the one that you have here, uh, an intellectual space, for considering these things 
without putting your neck on the on the block uh, in a sort of party political kind of way. That is something that, that somehow parliamentary practice needs to adopt much, much more. Uh, the, the, the kind of space where you're not going to be leapt on by the tabloid newspapers for having said something when all you were doing was just floating an idea or discussing it or asking for people's ideas. You know, the whole nature of the political debate is so antithetical to getting really good, mature, well-thought-out uh, legislation and, and, and programs in place. So th there is a kind of, of um, you know, supply-side uh, uh, solution here, which is the electoral system, um, the, uh, the, the space for, for thinking about things that don't carry a part of political cost in them, and also uh, making every effort to ensure that the public are uh, properly informed and, and to some extent safeguarded from misinformation. Now, that's a tricky one, that, because you, can't, you shouldn't censor. You know, those of us who, who were alive when the internet was born, do you remember how we thought the great global agora was coming into existence, the great democracy, inf information, nowhere for the politicians and so on to hide, you know, all those sorts of thoughts we had. And then the internet has turned out to be the biggest lavatory war in history, everybody's scribbling their horrible graffiti on it, all the conspiracy theories and nonsense and falsehoods and rubbish and pornography and God knows what else. Although, of course, it is also, if you know how to use it properly, uh, a very valuable resource. We educators have learned quickly in the last couple of decades that our task is to help our students become good, critical evaluators of what they meet with in this tsunami of information and misinformation which drowns them every minute of the day. But they've got to become very thoughtful about these things. Well, among the things that we can do is we can make it uh, impossible for a non-DOM to own a media outlet, or even worse still, a multiplicity in the That would be, just that by itself would help a little bit. And you could think of some other things like that where you say, right, if you're going to um, claim that, that you're in a position to pontificate or advise or, or have a line on political affairs, be here, pay your taxes here in full, uh, be part of the story. Just that, that, that would be a, be a help. And there would be a raft of things like that that one could consider. I cannot believe that I'm the Liberal Democrat politician on this panel and I wasn't the first to mention the importance of PR. Um, <laughs> Not only am I being marked down by the, by the presiding officer assessor, I think I'll probably have my party membership rescinded as a, as a result. I think the, the, the point you make in, in terms of the debate we're having here, and, and I think you're, uh, you're, you're absolutely right, not just the Festival of Politics, but the work done by the Future Forum mm. in the Scottish Parliament has been invaluable in creating that, that safe space for mm. those debates. Um, but and, and I think we all suffer a little bit of an imposter syndrome. Um, but on, on, on issues in relation to AI, we're talking about it in the, in, in the context at the moment about how you, you regulate um, what happens on the internet, etc. Um, but some of the areas you were talking about are going to take you into a level of, of, of technical understanding and expertise um, that it's going to be I would suggest probably nigh on impossible to find in a part in, in this parliament, in, in, in the UK parliament, and even having witnesses before committees that have the level of, of, of technical expertise, not just to um, understand, explain what is happening now, but anticipate what's going likely to happen down the line, is going to be enormously challenging. How you regulate, how you, you uh, anticipate the sorts of problems that are going to arise is enormously difficult, because in a sense innovation is what, and creativity is what you're trying to 
um, to uh, allow space for, um, but but those with uh, nefarious objectives as a result of the the, the Grayling Law um, are are going to be active players within that uh, debate. So. I think you talk about the, the importance of institutions. So how, sitting in this institution, how uh, are, there, are there institutions that are doing this well at the moment, that are, that are anticipating change down the track and, and, and getting ahead of the game in terms of the way that they're setting laws, that they're stimulating debate? Well, on, on the question of legislatures mm. uh, in particular, I, I think a pretty well... Uh, all of them, you know, even Westminster, uh, but certainly this one, and when you look at congressional committees also sometimes, mm. despite the, the, the bitter, bitter uh, uh, partisanship of American politics, um, little bracket here again on the PR question, it doesn't seem to me, by the way, that PR should be a party political matter, mm. should be just a matter of justice, mm -hmm. you know, just as, uh, but, you, but the first past the post voting system we have in the, for UK Parliament, they have it in the United States for the House of Representatives. As you know, the House, the Senate is not a representative house at all. It's two um, senators from each state, no matter how populist and so on. So it's woefully undemocratic. It has nothing to do with democracy. But the House of, of Representatives, first past the post. The result of first past the post is two party, two main political groupings. And eventually they become so polarized, so bitterly divided, so hostile to one another, the political debate becomes just slogans and finger-pointing and yelling, uh, and there's no proper uh, political discussion. And what you see in the United States here is practically a civil war. Uh, you know, it's, it's just appalling to see what's happening with the situation there. So, so, so to, to uh, you know, overcome that PR is, is absolutely essential. Now, in a PR-elected parliament, you would expect parliamentary committees, committees of inquiry, congressional committees, and so on, to because they recognise their duty to the people as a whole, to everybody, to the society, on whose behalf they are, are uh, governing, whom they are serving, that they have to try to get the most mature-minded, judicious uh, outcome from um, a, a process of thinking, how are we going to deal with this, how are we going to deal with that? Listening to witnesses, um, evaluating the case that they make, trying to equip themselves with as much expertise as possible, making... I mean, again, you know, uh, something that your education system in Scotland privileges over what we have in the rest of the UK is increasing literacy, not just literal, you know, uh, literary literacy, but scientific literacy, mathematical literacy, technological literacy, just being literate enough. You don't have to be an expert in AI, but to know enough about it, to be, be able intelligently to assess claims that are made about their likely use, effect, and so on under government of the realisation that unintended consequences always do flow from choices we make. We do make mistakes, you know, nothing is ever perfect. I mean, look, in this world of ours, outside the borders of Scotland, there isn't anything perfect. Uh, <laughs> so we, we have to kind of accept that and accept that decisions we make and the information we get, you know, are, are always uh, going to be our best lights, our best judgment that we can make. So. It's not a problem that can be overcome, it's a problem that can be managed. You sit on a panel here, you're talking to people who know about AI, its applications, how it might develop, what, what would happen if you used AI for this, that, and the other, and they say, well, this might happen, that might happen, and you think, well, so well, we be, that's not too great, so let's try and manage that, and then in five or ten years' time, you turn out to be wrong. But you did your very best at the time. 
on the information available, you, you uh, acted by your best lights. And this is an important point, this one. It's not just a cliche point. Think of this. There's a philosopher in, in Oxford, one of my um, tribe, uh, who um, came up with the following thought. He said, the pe people who are alive hundred years uh, in a hundred years' time, if we do nothing whatever about the climate, just let, let climate change happen, the world that those people will occupy in a hundred years' time will be their world. What they value, they will value. How they find happiness and pleasure and so on, they will find in those circumstances. Why should we now second-guess what they will value or think good? Why should we do things now that will influence them in 100 years' time when we don't know what they will think? Well, my answer to that is, we know now what we wouldn't like the world to be like in 100 years' time, and so we now have a duty to work by our best lights now, our very best thinking now, about what was, how we should exercise our responsibilities for the planet now. That, 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 it's that kind of argument, and it's an argument with bite, that we're doing, are going to do our, our level best to do what, what, what we think is best. Excellent. Right, I've hogged the floor long enough. Um, I'm going to open this up to, to questions. As I said, if you could raise your hand, keep it raised until um, a microphone is passed to you, I'd be very grateful. Um, we'll maybe take a couple of questions in, in a row um, to try and get in as many as we can. So I'm going to start with the gentleman here and then the other gentleman in the front row. Hello, Professor Grayle. That's a very interesting thought. Thanks. Do you think it's inevitable that water shortages, droughts, will lead to conflict and people trafficking or refugees and also people coming from London up to Orkney to, to live? It's <laughs> <laughs> not the only reason for moving to Orkney. Um, we'll try the gentleman at the end and then come back to Professor Grayle. I was just thinking that we spoke a lot about the, in the political context here in the UK, in Scotland, but of course the problems that you set out are global, global problems, and we're dealing with very different political systems, culture, um, expectations, uh, frothy nationalism, I'm thinking particularly in China, um, which is a huge competitor, and, and how do we actually square that? Because there's not a lot of time ahead of us to really start getting into the meat of the problems. Thank yes, thank you for that. Thank you. Um, I sort of vaguely recognise you now, now that you mention. I see I'm very delighted to find former pupils uh, <laughs> advising parliamentarians. <laughs> Water. Some years ago, about, about four or five years ago, I was invited by the government of Chile to go and take part in a conference in San Diego, and the inducement to go all that way was uh, that they would lay on a, a visit to the Antarctic. So, of course, I was very delighted to do that, and the Antarctic, as you know, is the re greatest reservoir on the planet of fresh water, uh, and so the big question arises about protection of the Antarctic and uh, what might happen and so forth. But... My point in, in telling you this is that while visiting the Antarctic, I met a most interesting man, now alas deceased, a professor of uh, um, hydrology at a, a Dutch university, the University of Twente. And he asked me a question. He said, what percentage of fresh water consumed in the United Kingdom is imported? <laughs> I never, never seemed a you know extraordinary question. I began to think of bottles of Evian and so on, and I couldn't imagine what percentage of fresh water consumed. He said, 
70%. I said, what? He said, 70% in the form of fresh fruit and vegetables imported from countries with a water shortage by air to be fresh in the uh, supermarkets. I just add up all those things together and ask, how do we live in a blooming lunatic asylum when we think about climate change? But he pointed out to me, if I ask you, what percentage of the mass of planet Earth is water? You got any idea? Huh? 90%. You're thinking of the surface area of the oceans. I asked you about the mass of the planet. The answer is under 1%. This is a very, very dry rock. And climate change is going to make a huge problem over water. It has already caused terrible problems in Central Asia. There have been wars fought over drying up riverbeds and dry lakes and what have you because countries further up, upstream have taken water out for irrigation and hydroelectricity and so on, downstream, and no, no water. Water is going to be a real problem. And again, this is something you see, it's such a good question you ask because you know we're all looking at uh, floods and we don't think that, but actually we're not going to have anything to drink. We're going to be drowning and thirsty at the same time. I mean, this is, you know, the terrible irony or the paradox. So you're right, I'm afraid unless something is done, we are going to be facing genuine conflict between people, uh, people within a country. Look at France at the moment, the Loire is practically dry. Uh, you can imagine difficulties there, but internationally as well. You're dead right. So this, this uh, bears on your question about the fact that there's such disparity globally. I mean, you think about, about uh, China. I, I, it happens that, that I uh, lived in China for a while, back in the early 80s. You did also. So um, the, the uh, uh, rapidity with which the Chinese economy has grown has been at the most terrible price to the environment of, in China. The rivers are polluted, the air is polluted. They, they've just steamed ahead with a, a development, um, taking no precautions whatever against the impact that it would have on you know, the, the, the environment. And now these mega cities that they have in, in China now, so polluted, so overcrowded, um, there's no, no uh, surprise attached to why they were so nervous about COVID because of the density of the populations in these cities of 20 million or more uh, and, and the devastating effect it could have. Um, but, but, you know, a bit like the United States, China is fundamentally a 19th century country because it still thinks in 19th century terms about geopolitical power. It thinks that it has to have a big economy in order to have a big military and it has to have a big military in order to be the big boy on the block. And this is why they're so irredentist building military stations on the south, in the South China Sea and the Sprackley Islands and, and wanting to get Taiwan back and rattling the sable all the time as we see. So they, they are a very, very um, unpredictable and uh, dangerous player. Uh, and they're, you know, everything's bottom line for them, for their interests. And, and we know that they've already got the muscle um, and they're already a very destabilizing factor in the world. But then, of course, so is the U.S. in its own way. So, I mean, if you look at the EU, one, one reason why, and uh, I'm completely neutral on this, uh, I'm a great passionate admirer of the EU, as we don't be very neutral, <laughs> because just think, just think of this, just think of this one thing, that in order to trade with the EU, you have to meet its standards. As a result, 
The EU have raised manufacturing and agricultural standards all around the world. They've had this impact all around the world. Soft power impact is absolutely marvellous. And, and the project itself, of course, is about peace and progress. You know, you were all reading Tom Paine in bed last night. You remember what he said at the end of the 18th century? If you want peace between nations, make them so intimately connected with one another through trade that they cannot go to war. The same thing was said by Copton and Bright in the middle of the 19th century, the great free traders. Those wonderful visionary men uh, and women at the, uh, in the years after the Second World War who said, enough, in Europe we have shed so much blood, it's been century after century after century of warfare, like a huge internecine <coughs> civil war of the European peoples against themselves. Let us, let us create something which guarantees peace and which guarantees standards and progress. And that was the, the concept uh, behind it. What absolute lunacy to vote to go out of a, of, of a thing like that. And, and we see all, already, you see all, already how, how sort of degraded things have started to become as a result. You know, things, I, I notice even in the little granular level of going into Boots the chemist or going into Waitrose and looking for something that was always there once, and now either it isn't or it's only there sometimes. It's that kind of little degradation, little you know, wearing out of the carpet and not being replaced, you know, that, that is, is happening. How do we get onto this? I was talking about, so how do we deal with the international problem? Well, the, the answer is, the answer is, it's very, very hard, obviously, with players like China, and indeed like the US, because the US, in its own way, is, is big and powerful and uh, sort of thrusting, and it wants its own way. Even under Uncle Joe Biden, it's still, you know, got the CIA and so forth. So, and we ourselves uh, in, in, in the UK or Britain, Scotland even, you know, we've got our interests to protect uh, and we're not going to just roll over and let other people trample on us. We're going to be on our guard and vigilant. And, and that creates this difficulty. The law, the law is that we're going to, you know, do, do what uh, is in our interest. So it's very hard. But if you think about those times and places in which... Um, sincere and well-intentioned diplomatic efforts did manage to keep the peace for long periods after between Waterloo and the First World War, despite things like the Franco-Prussian War, Crimea, and so on, one or two little blips weren't there, but there was quite a long, long peace there. And now with, with the EU, you can see there are some sort of possibilities. And let us hope that things like ASEAN and Mercure in, in South America, and, you know, all these uh, mini EUs that are trying to, to form around the world, well, eventually all the bubbles will coalesce, just think of it, into a wonderful, peaceful, progressive, lovely, safe world that we can all enjoy. <laughs> Much. I'm, I'm tended to, tempted to wind it up here. <laughs> um, but no, we'll, we'll keep going with the questions. Um, I'm looking for a bit of gender balance here. I'm going to t therefore take um, the woman in the middle um, there. Yeah. And then I'm going to come to, to you at the front. Hi, I'll stand up. Uh, my name's Cassie. Nice to... Um meet you and it's been a great talk. I want to thank you firstly for using alarmist language about climate change at the start there. I think it's something that we all should be doing more and to see in the media and from people like yourself it's brilliant. Um, one thing I had on my mind during this talk was the fact that you know we've got this election kind of thing happening down in Westminster at the minute and in the last couple of days one of those um, you know, people up for, for PM has been using fracking 
is something that's come up on the table and I, I personally find that uh, distressing, you know, given the context we're living in here. And I wonder what you have to say about what... With the discussion rarely coming on to climate in that whole political agenda that they're going through right now, and when it does, fracking's coming up, what can we do as people to practically guide that discussion back to, to where it needs to be and away from places like that? Is there power that we have when even just a small group of people are making these decisions like the, uh, the Tory voters, for example? Uh, yeah, that's my question. What can we do practically from here? Okay, and I'm going to bring... Can we have the microphone to the front here as well? The lady here. Oops. Pass it across. Be great. Thanks. Hello, my name's Colette. I'm just representing myself. And thanks for coming and joining us in this fabulous festival of politics. Um, PR. I want to get back into the PR question. Um, PR has never... I've never been able to make the leap into full PR. I really like the additional member system that we have here through our parliament. But full PR frightens me with its prospects for legitimising extremism particularly frightens me when I see the examples in Germany and what happened with you know, the AFD and the, the level of legitimacy that was afforded to them through their parliamentary representation. And the strength that they gained through that really troubles me in the context of what happens throughout Europe. And I look at the UK and I think, we have our, our Scottish electoral system, which I'm incredibly proud of. And I think it gives us a better result than what happens with the Parliament in Westminster. Um, but I look and think I'd rather have the Parliament in Westminster and the first-past-the-post system than have full PR because the rise of the extremist right really terrifies me. When I see Germans going in and ticking a ballot box to vote for options on the far right, and I, I think the historical resonances are particularly uncomfortable. And I look and think we've ended up in a situation where Nigel Farage never got himself elected in the UK. And I take some comfort from that. We are where we are with Brexit, but he never got to be legitimised as being a member of a UK parliament. So that, and the other point coming back to that was, we talk about people going in and saying, um, I want full PR because my vote then counts. And I think Jess Phillips in her, um, her last book makes really valid points about the value of your vote and actually explains practicalities that I never knew, that if I go in and vote, that the information about my address and that the person in, from that address attending and voting and what type of elections I voted in is retained so that parliamentarians are looking at their constituency and saying, well, actually, the turnout for this postcode area, the turnout for this, area, this village is actually level X, Y, and Z. They don't know whether I wrote on it, I don't want to vote for any of you, or they don't know who I chose, but they know that people from that area went and voted. And that, I think it was surprising, slightly disappointing too, to think that then resources are directed um, to those particular areas where there are turnouts. So actually your vote does matter and does count for you and for your community. Okay. Thank you for that, okay. okay. So first off, on the fracking point, uh, well, since you do m mention that there is this... Uh, um, this uh, battle going on for the prime ministership uh, down south, with the, uh, the the rivals hurling gobbets of raw meat at their at their elderly 
150,000 voters, um, making increasingly wild claims and remarks and promises and things in order to attract that vote. What will happen as a result of either of them becoming prime minister, I don't know. But the, the, um, the, the fracking case is a, is a very good case for how important it is that at the very least the following three levels of, of activism should be activated. One is on-the-ground activism. I've been getting bodies in the way of you know, fracking machines and, and so on, Get, getting uh, people out uh, voting with their feet in these cases to try and stop them. So we've got to the point, I think, now where, where uh, before the law um, is such that to try and stop fracking, you're going to be put in prison for 10 years, we should use our right to, to do that to the full. So that, that's one thing. The second thing is that writing to um, uh, MPs and MSPs uh, and, and doing it often, frequently. I think you know you you might be able to, to say them uh, how the effect this has. But I've been told that mm -hmm. when MPs get letters, they get a dozen letters on a certain topic. They're inclined to think that that's a tip of an iceberg. There are a lot of people who haven't written but think that way, and it does make a difference to them. And so that kind of activism too, organising, campaigning, um, you know, getting getting people together, writing letters, having meetings, uh, raising a dust uh, really helps. And the third level is, even in the first-past-the-post voting system, by the, the use of intelligent tactical voting, you can really have a big influence uh, on the vote, um, providing people are prepared to work together, hold their noses in some cases, and cast a vote where they wouldn't normally. But, but in, you know, in that kind of case, you really can make a big difference. And there is now a major concerted effort going on in the UK to try to uh, optimise and potentiate tactical voting for the next election so we can be sure um, that we don't uh, uh, get these folk in again. So that's, uh, uh, apologies to any Conservatives here, but that, that is an aim. So that, that I think, in the current uh, situation, those are the kinds of tools that we have, and they're not ineffective, that, that's the point. Believing that they are um, makes us give up uh, or not even start, or when we do start, give up too soon. Now on the question of PR, I am absolutely morally convinced that if Nigel Farage had been elected to Parliament and we could have seen him on a daily basis being an absolute idiot, that UKIP would never have got anywhere near where it did finally manage to get with Brexit. This is why I think it is such a good idea to let the extremists in. If there are two or three or ten of them, it doesn't matter in a 600-seat Parliament. Let them in there. Let us hear them. Let's see what they're made of. We all saw the Brexit Party people in, uh, in Brussels and Luxembourg in the last months of our EU membership, making absolute idiots of themselves. I mean, they were shameful. They were an embarrassment. And this is what you get with extremists in, in Parliament. You've got to be very sure, however, that the system, the PR system adopted, I think the one that works most best, uh, remember I said nothing outside Scotland is perfect, okay? So you're not going to get a perfect electoral system, is the single transferable vote system. Uh, the the um, uh, example of Italy and Israel, where very small parties are the tail that wag the whole dog and can have an overweening influence on them, that can be protected against by having thresholds. There are intelligent ways that you can manage a PR system where the, the um, elected body really does represent the great diversity of views, opinions, interests, and needs in the community. It, it doesn't silence groups of people or, or deny voices to people. I mean, it's undemocratic to deny a voice to UKIP or, or Nigel Farage. 
Uh, but in fact, it does us a great deal of good when we do hear their voice because we can evaluate the, the um, quality of their arguments. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually for it. I'm, I like to see uh, uh, you know, some extremists get in because they are more dangerous outside. If you sweep them under the carpet and they're festering away and you don't know what they're saying or planning or, or doing except when they come out of the woodwork or the demo or something, uh, they, they are more of a problem if they're invisible than if they're visible. And so that is, to my way of thinking, a great advantage of PR. And of course, that advantage uh, mentioned by uh, Jess Phillips, for whom I have great admiration, um, uh, that, that advantage uh, uh, remains. I mean, we will notice that the people vote. Of course, if voting is compulsory, then the, the idea that we might only support people who happen to vote for our party, which is a, a corrupt practice. And we see too much of that, in fact, confessed to by Rishi Sunak just recently. Uh, that would be prevented by that. Thank you. Can uh, I just say, by the way, of course you can. The, 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 those of you who uh, organize conferences and, and act as presiding officer, uh, it is empirically the case, so this isn't just a woke remark, it's empirically the case that if the first person uh, invited to ask a question is a woman, more women ask questions afterwards. Just that it's another grayling law that I think is being evidenced here. Right, we've got the lady here. I'm, I, now, I'm going to make another plea for brief questions and, and comments because there's now a forest of arms going up and I'm watching the clock at the back of the room. So I'm going to take three here. I'm going to take the three down this line. So starting the lady at the front, then the gentleman in, in the wonderful shirt, and then the gentleman towards the back with a, with a mask, and then I'll come over to this side. Um, these laws, that these um, um, weapons that are autonomous, who is programming them? Where, where, is, where are the decisions being made about how they're programmed? Because, okay, they, they're autonomous once they've been programmed. And where can we, the ordinary public, make an input as to whether we want them or not? Impressive. You're probably not allowed to tell, are you? <laughs> <laughs> gentleman in the third row there, yeah. And then we'll go to the gentleman in the back. Hello. Uh, could I challenge you on one or two issues? Very briefly. Yes, of course you can. The latest <laughs> one being fracking. Hmm. I think there's an awful lot of virtue signaling there. We import frack gas all the time from America. It is far cleaner to burn than coal or oil in our generation of energy. And we have to have a much more um, science-based argument than the emotional one which generates the anti-fracking um, lobby. Uh, secondly, um, neuroscientists would suggest that uh, you will not get a mature decision from a 16-year-old. Probably 23 might be nearer the mark to give them the vote. Well, ask any neuroscientist. Okay, okay, okay. No, no. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, the way individual countries could control the IT um, coming from uh, Silicon Valley would be to declare them publishers. But we are not prepared to take on the might of America, who declared that they would never accept that they were publishers. Okay, uh, that's you've had just, you've, my you, question. That was that was my challenge. <laughs> Very briefly, in please. Plato's cycle of uh, governance, we would appear to be leaving the um, democracy in many parts of the world, 
are we going to go through chaos before we get to Eurotonomy? Sorry, Eurotocracy. Okay, right. I'm going to have the gentleman at the, at the back who's got his hand raised. Yeah. If you ask too many questions, I won't remember what they are. <laughs> I mean, you did say keep the questions short. I think Indeed. you also meant the answers as well, so I will try and keep them short. Next. Um, what is your observation of the effects of, uh, of um, the, the present situation with technology on our brains, on, on how we think, on how we begin to try to solve these problems, which are very complex? Okay, thank you very much. Okay. As many of those as you can remember. Right. Now, the first question was? Just... <laughs> where, where are the laws? Oh, the laws, laws, laws. Oh, yes, well, I, I've, I've, yeah. Okay. Uh, I would imagine, now I don't know for, for, for sure, I would imagine that the, the sort of base programming would be uh, at the manufacturing level, getting them ready. But the um, on-site programming would be, you know, if you're, if you're in a particular theatre like Afghanistan or it might be um, South America or somewhere like that, that it would be programmed specifically for that en environment and for what is known about the kind of weaponry that your opponents uh, might have. So there would be, there would be that couple of different levels of, of programming responsibility. Does, however, and the purport of your question is, who is accountable in the end? I mean, if it does, yeah, exactly. How, how does uh, um, uh, some terrible mishap with these weapon systems, uh, who, who do we blame? The government, the military, the manufacturers, and so on. So this is that question. How can we do anything about it? Well, same story as I with the fracking case, which is to, to be active, to be a, a participant in discussions, in writing about it, in becoming knowledgeable about it. And by the way, I should have mentioned that the power of word of mouth. If you talk to a um, publisher, they often say that the way that books come to be bestsellers is through word of mouth, is through people talking to one another in the pub and you know, over dinner table. Uh, and, and that too, informing and encouraging, persuading and letting people know what your own point of view is. So the, 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 there are these different ways. It sounds very sort of, you know, impuissant that, that an, in, one individual human being cannot stop autonomous weapons or cannot stop fracking or, or whatever, uh, <coughs> makes us feel powerless. But we're not powerless not completely powerless, uh, even as individuals, and we're certainly not if we band together and try to make a difference. On the fracking question, I think it's more, uh, uh, you're right that uh, gas is cleaner than coal and, and so on. It's still a fossil fuel. Uh, the desideratum is still to get away from, from fossil fuels. Instead of investing money in fracking, why not in more active and energetic development of renewable resources? I mean, you think about a country like Scotland, which is practically... Uh, you know, independent uh, from the energy point of view because of the, of the wonderful resources here of uh, wind and solar and, and wave power uh, and, and the great strides that have been made on the green agenda in Scotland. It's remarkable, admirable when you think about it from other parts of the world. So that, you know, it's, it's a question of intent and will and where you channel the investment. And the investment should go to renewals. After all, the sunshine, wind, it's free and it's, it's re relatively harmless, whereas uh, gas is not. And it's not just that it's gas, it's also that you're, you're, you're tearing up the entrails of Mother Earth to get at it and, uh, you know, and you're uh, having industrial processes going on, um, which uh, pretty soon are going to be parked on the moon for minerals um, better than here maybe. 
So far as neuroscience is concerned, I wouldn't believe um, everything that neuroscientists say. Uh, I know um, many of them, love them dearly. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, I have another book which I might recommend to you um, in where I discuss some of the difficulties about neuroscience. Because it's been said, now, I think there have been tremendous advances in the neurosciences. And some of the clinical applications of what we've discovered about the functioning of the brain, brain physiology, and about psychoneurology, and about um, the, uh, and the way that we can diagnose and treat uh, brain diseases and lesions and injuries and so on, has been tremendous in the last few years. I remember a very, very dear friend of mine, we were students together at Oxford, he went on to become a neurologist because it was the medical specialism for intellectuals, and it was a fascinating subject, but there wasn't anything they could do. But now they can do something. They can do quite a lot. Uh, so in, uh, in uh, neurology, a lot can happen. But a, a, a die-in-the-world skeptic will tell you that magnetic resonance imaging, even functional magnetic resonance imaging, where real-time observation or near real-time observation is made of brain function when a, a subject, the usual laboratory rats are students, of course, when a subject is challenged with some task and then you look at which brain structures are activated, is a is sort of incredibly high-tech, very, very expensive version of phrenology. Because you're looking at large structures in the brain and the actual network of, of neurons is so fine and so huge and so deep level that we are nowhere near beginning to understand we do know that uh, in the early teenage years, I, you know, I myself have worn the tin helmet and huddled in a trench while my children were passing through that particular stage of life, <coughs> the girls, because as you know, girls are completely horrible when they're that age, but uh, they become nice afterwards, so that's right. But, uh, uh, but apart from the sort of confusion and turmoil of the early teenage years, it seems to me that the 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds, I mean, the sort of people I meet and interview and teach at university level, sixth form level, and so on, are perfectly capable of being asked to think seriously about something and to cast a vote. Um, right. This is going to have to be very, very brief. I'm not going to be able to get to this side of the room, I'm afraid. Right, we've got one, two, three, four, and that's it. And it's going to be one comment or question. Starting with the gentleman here, then the lady behind. Gentleman in the white shirt. I'll keep a note of the questions. Thank you. Much of what you're talking about seems to stem from poor quality political leadership. What can we do about society or what can we change that may help to promote better quality political leadership. Thank you. And the lady behind. Can renewables compete with um, nuclear power in the fight against climate change? Okay. There's a lady with her hand up at the back and then there's one in the, the gentleman at the very, very back. It's been exemplary so far. Don't let me down. I'm just really enjoying the debate about PR because back when the um, internet was still young, I studied politics and was taught that the main benefit of first-past-the-post is it forces discourse between two parties, excluding the extremes, and brings the parties to the centre ground which serve the majority. And in the time of... 
Tony Blair and David Cameron, you could sort of see some, some validation of that. And then now we seem to have a situation where the first-past-the-post systems are really like examples of complete polarisation and almost no dialogue at all. So my question would be, what have you observed that's happened in the last 20 years that's, that's caused that change? And I just can't help it. I used to work in the criminal justice system, and I think it definitely can take until about 26 for people to mature, particularly if they've experienced childhood trauma. But I think maybe then if the minimum age for going to prison was also 23, we could raise the minimum age for voting to 23. Thank you very much indeed. And then the gentleman at the very back in the far corner. Thank you very much. Um, Jamie Scott, no affiliation. Just a very quick question. Um, you've talked about very scary electronic systems. Um, do you think that sort of, uh, I suppose, bioengineering, germ warfare, do you think that's cheaper and do you think that's likely? Um, I suppose what I'm really asking is, do you think COVID was real, you know, man-made? Right. Well, two of those questions I can answer very, very uh, quickly. Good. So the second question is, yes, uh, I, I think uh, um, renewables are uh, every bit as, in fact, better than nuclear, just in case something goes wrong with nuclear. But uh, renewables are safe and good, and, and they can provide us with everything that we need. So, yes, for that. Answer, is COVID man-made? No, I don't think it is. I think, I think men and women um, passed it on a lot. I'm very admiring of the people wearing their masks in this room, by the way. Very noble of you, because uh, it's still going on, COVID, and it's not, not over yet. But I don't think it is man-made. On the question of, of PR and, and maturity, the Greeks, you know, thought that uh, um, men, boys, became mature adults at the, about the age of 30. And women never. <laughs> they were always children. Of course, the truth of the matter is that, that women are mature adults by about the age of, of 15 or so, uh, and men are never. Uh, <laughs> so, isn't that joke, you know, Freud, why do men take less time in analysis than women? Answer, because when they have to go back to childhood, it's quick, they're already there, you know, that kind of <laughs> all, all, those, all those jokes. So it's not really a question of, of maturity, uh, you know, and when you cease to be an adolescent. I mean, you know, even an adolescent is capable of being presented with a, a serious question and making a serious choice, as indeed they do when they choose what they're going to study for their hires or where they're going to go to university and so on. And, and those are important, uh, you know, life-affecting decisions. And given an opportunity to think seriously about things, I think they can, they can do that. And the political leadership? Oh, the political leadership thing. Look, I, I, you know, I think... I, think I asked for myself as much as anything else. <laughs> I, I think our, our political, our political um, order, our political climate and system makes it very, very difficult, even for sincere-minded uh, and very genuine people who go into politics to try to do something good. It makes it pretty hard for them. I mean, you yourself pointed out you can't be absolutely frank about everything with voters because then you may disable yourself from doing other things that you think would be a benefit to them because you would have, you would have truncated your own career. Uh, and, you know, why, why is it that good and well-intentioned people have to toe a party line, obey the whip, um, you know, vote for absolutely awful blooming people, as we've seen over the last couple of years in, in Parliament? It's been an absolutely dreadful spectacle of people who you would expect to be serious-minded people voting for things to protect uh, um, you know, fellow MPs who've done 
uh, you know, scandalous things like Owen Patterson, mm. or backing somebody like Boris Johnson, who's you know obviously unfit for office uh, for, for for so long. This is the result of the political culture. In my view, a, a, a proportional representation system plus the kind of spaces that we have for discussing these these things without fear of, of uh, you know rabid tabloid attack and, uh, on you, uh, and also the responsibility of electors to evaluate people who put themselves forward for election and to choose good people, serious people, people with experience, people with some nobility of soul. Thank you very much indeed. Could I also offer an observation on the point about PR and, 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 and how the, the polarisation has happened? Because it seems to me that um, the, the, the points you were making about AI, the, the, the ability to identify at a very granular level um, voters who's likely to vote, who's not likely to vote, has meant that it's not just now even about key constituencies that swing um, uh, the, 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 the colour of the government either way, but very small pockets of, of individual voters mm -hmm. within those constituencies and, and that the parties will drive to, to, to switch them mm -hmm. um, more than they, they will um, a, a kind of message that broadly encapsulates the, the, the needs of the, the broader population. Oh yes, that's a very excellent point. And thank you for reminding yeah. me that that was an important part of the question that was asked about what's happened. Well, two things in a way. Let me just remind you that back in the 18th century, in the second half of the sorry, uh, yeah, eight, uh, 18th century, 19th century, I'll get myself located properly, a point was made about the um, sovereignty of Parliament, of the Westminster Parliament. In fact, I think it was Leslie Stevens, it was definitely 19th century, the father of Virginia Woolf, wrote an article and he said that, that our Parliament is sovereign in the sense that if it legislated that blue-eyed babies should be killed at birth, then that is the law and it would have to be obeyed. And John Stuart Mill said, this is true, but it would never happen. Our MPs would never vote for such a law because our MPs are gentlemen. Now, that ship sailed quite a long time ago, <laughs> uh, hoping that our sovereign parliament would be you know, run by gentlemen and they would obey instincts. But, you know, think of recent history. Think of, you know, uh, Ackley and, and uh, Macmillan and uh, um, Harold Wilson and even maybe even Margaret Thatcher. You could just think of people like that who had some sense of restraint, some sense of the appropriate or the proper thing or not going too far. And it was that that helped to keep this completely uncontrollable thing, which is a sovereign parliament elected on first-past-the-post basis, in check, that there's still some sense of propriety. That's gone. I can't think of, of the people who are... Well, I, I, words fail. Okay, so that's, what, that's one thing. But, but, but the other thing is um, social media has been terribly destructive of our democratic process. In 2016, and, and in fact, you know, if that's fair, Obama was a very successful user of uh, social media as far back as his first election in 2008, realizing the reach that it has and the influence that it has. But once this had been cottoned onto, especially by the bad guys, you know, the bad guys realized that there was something they could do with social media. Now, in a first-past-the-post kind of situation, or in a referendum, which is also binary, you have the yes and the no, the in and the out, the red and the blue, okay? You've got two blocks of people. And in between them, you've got a group of people who haven't yet made up their minds, or who could be influenced, or haven't thought about it yet, right? 
You don't bother about these two blocks because you know that in every election and in every referendum, the difference is made by a very small number of people at the margins. Very small number of people. And you don't have to get all of those people in between the two blocks. You only need just enough of them to tip the balance. Look at the result of the um, EU referendum. 51.89% of, of uh, the actual votes cast were for leave. 37% of the total electorate, 26% of the population. That's why we're in such a good place now, okay? But in, in order to get that, and by the way, don't believe me, go on YouTube and listen to the lecture that Dominic Cummings himself gave about how they did it. How they spent more money than they were allowed to, they were found guilty by the Electoral Commission afterwards. A judge in court, we took a case in court about the illegality of this, he said, if this uh, referendum had not been advisory, it would have had to be voided because of the, uh, um, the things that were done by the Leave campaign on the money side. But they used that money in the last couple of weeks to just get a few people to move, and it just tipped the balance. Social media are devastatingly dangerous for, for the democratic process, and the one big remedy against that is that there, there should be no micro-targeting. So what happened in, in that election was that um, because of the data that had been harvested, you know, by Cambridge Analytica, you could identify people. It's so easy, okay? You too, you don't like high taxes. You too, you like guns, but you don't mind high taxes. You too, you don't like immigrants, but you don't mind guns and high taxes, etc. So what I can do is I can micro-target messaging to you about what concerns you. Yeah. I can micro-target, and then I can collate you, and you can get, get you all to vote with me, even though you disagree with one another. And by, by this means of micro-targeting, and the point about my messaging to you is that nobody else can see that I'm lying through my teeth to you, because then they can't call me out. This is a big danger in our democracy today, that all political messaging should be completely transparent, and it should say who's paying for it. Yeah. yeah. There, an, an, an encouragement to go and look up Dominic coming on, on YouTube, probably. <laughs> Probably slightly less inadvisable than um, putting sex robots in your in your search engine um, from earlier. On. Look, I'm very very sorry we haven't been able to take all of the questions um, th this evening. Uh, but can I thank you very much indeed uh, for your participation? Uh, can I thank the um, Futures Forum, uh, our partners in in, uh, in holding. Uh, this evening's uh, event, uh, but in particular can I thank uh, Professor Grayling very much indeed for being so generous with his time. He has agreed to be even more generous uh, with his time and to stay on for a bit um, to sign copies of his book um, in the Festival Cafe back up in the in the garden lobby. For, so for those of you who didn't get a chance to ask your question, um, you can maybe buttonhole him in the Festival Cafe as well. But um, can I also take the, the uh, opportunity to remind everyone that the festival continues uh, again tomorrow. There'll be further debates on issues um, uh, relating to climate change. Uh, another event uh, on the increase in strongman politics uh, around the world. Um, some would say rather closer to home uh, in recent times uh, as well. We look forward to welcoming some or all of you back uh, here tomorrow. But for now, can I thank you very much indeed uh, for coming, for being uh, so engaged uh, and engaging. Um, but can I, thank, uh, can I ask you in particular to thank Professor Grayling in the normal fashion. <laughs> <laughs>